you know, no one does it by themselves, right? You have to have support from lots of different people and you have to win that support. But an entrepreneur, just like an entrepreneur, you know, you got to pitch, you got to get a pitch for funding. You got to do your series A rounds and get your investors and do all those things. So there's always someone you have to sort of help on, has to understand the story of, of why you need support. Welcome to the Rebel Souls podcast, where we flip the middle finger to the status quo. I'm your host, Shelly Paxton, lifelong rebel, liberator of souls, and author of Soulbatical, a corporate rebel's guide to finding your best life. Settle in as we dive deep with badass leaders who are rebelling for what matters most in life, business, and the world at large. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get this revolution started. Hey, hey, fellow Rebel Souls. Welcome back to the Rebel Souls podcast with me, Shelly Paxton. So good to have you back and to be able to spend this time together. I hope that each of these conversations is fueling your soul and inspiring your own badassery and what you're rebelling for in your life you're picking up lots of little nuggets of wisdom and getting ideas. That's the whole idea here because the more we all learn from each other, the more I can bring amazing people into this community for us to learn from together, the more we can get this revolution underway. And that feels good. I know I have learned Oh man, I was going to say at least one thing, but I've learned way more than that in each episode from the guests we've had so far. And this one is no different. My conversation today with Mark Hans Richer is really inspiring. And it's also special because he's, I think of all the people I've interviewed so far, he's been in my life for the longest Mark Hans and I started our careers together in the advertising business here in Chicago in the early 90s. Yes, I said that out loud, and I'm still trying to smile on video. <laughs> and we're still on this journey together. He's still, he, you know, we worked together, we adventured together, and we're still friends to this day. And I've learned so much from him. He is the OG rebel soul in my life. He's the one, we all need a person like this. Maybe I can be like this. Or maybe for you, maybe you already have this person or these people in your life. But he's the one who is always the trailblazer. He was reminding me that I was a rebel soul. He was helping me to stay clear that I can always break the rules and that I can create what I want and to go out and have some fun and to be really innovative in everything that I do. And that's been invaluable on this journey and will continue to be he is the one, if you've read the book, and even if you haven't, he's the one who inspired me getting into improv. We actually got into improv comedy at Second City together. He's the one who did this five-month crazy journey to Africa and inspired my first sabbatical when I backpacked across Europe and did volunteer work in Central Europe. And he's the one who ultimately brought me to Harley Davidson, kind of reinvigorated the badass in me. 
So there's a lot of fun here we have in, you know, reliving a few of those stories, but in me now turning the tables so we can dig deep into his journey. He is one of the most creative and innovative marketers out there still to this day. He's worked on some really iconic brands from his time at General Motors, on Pontiac and Chevy and GMC. And he tells a really cool story about GMC and the turnaround they basically had to sell to leadership in six weeks. Then he went to become the very first chief marketing officer at Harley-Davidson and was part of a significant turnaround there and a lot of innovation from both a marketing and a product standpoint. And today he's disrupting yet another industry. He is in the kitchen and home or home kitchen and bath industry with fortune brands. You might know Moen or House of Roll, collection of brands. Moen is probably the most familiar. Mark Hans is the chief marketing and innovation officer across all of those brands. And we get into talking about the incredible innovation that they're driving and what was the catalyst for how they're thinking about their products and their mission and, and the resulting innovation. And what's really cool is it kind of harkened back to the conversation I had with Chip Conley. And if you haven't listened to that episode, it's worth going back to. It came up again here. The question is, what business are we really in? And if you remember, Chip's prompt was, ask that five times. You can never give the same answer twice. And you end up getting to this really expansive, emotional, almost unexpected space or answer to what business you're really in that's just kind of like strikes at the heart and soul. And they're doing that in this space with Moen and it's powerful. So I'm not going to spoil it. I want you guys to hear it from Mark Hans and hear how it evolved. And I think there's so many lessons, whether I know there are many of you who are still in corporate America who are listening to this or corporate period who are listening to this. There are also folks like me who are entrepreneurs, solopreneurs. Mark Hans's rebelling for corporate courage is really rebelling for courage in business. That's how I'm translating it. Courage in business, how we make those shifts individually as leaders, how we make those shifts in organizations, how we enroll people to come along with us in creating that courage and that change. And Mark Hans is the most incredible track record. So we talk about what that looks like and how nonlinear it is and how that's actually a good thing. I think so many of us look back and if we don't see linear progression or somebody tells us that it's not the perfect linear path, we somehow start doubting our value. And in many cases, I would argue in all cases, it's exactly the opposite. And so we get to dive into that as well. So I won't give away any more. This is a fun conversation. You're going to learn a lot from one of my friends and mentors. And let's just leave it at that. Let's dive into the conversation with Mark Hans. Enjoy. Before we begin, I want to share an offering from my soul to yours. If you've achieved traditional success only to realize that you're living someone else's dream, then this will start you on a profound journey toward becoming chief soul officer of your own life, just like I did. I'm gifting you a free chapter from my book, Soulbatical, A Corporate Rebel's Guide to Finding Your Best Life. 
It's called Liberating from the Shackles of Should. And if you're ready to, then visit soulbatical.com to download it for free. That's S-O-U-L-B-B-A-T-I-C-A-L.com. Warning, side effects include intense joy and fulfillment. Hey, Rebel Souls, welcome back. I'm so excited to welcome my longtime friend, fellow Rebel Soul, comrade in arms in so many ways. And I think he is the OG Rebel Soul and trailblazer in my life, at least. And I'm so excited for you guys to learn from him. So welcome to the show, Mark Hans. Hello, Shelly. It's (laughs) nice to be here virtually, kind of, with you. Kind of virtually from the from yeah. the uh, the kitchen and bath show in Vegas. Yeah. Yes, here I am. It's, You'll it's, all get used nice to Mark Hans's. Yeah, exactly. Nice. <laughs> My listeners will get used to your sense of humor as we ease yeah. as we ease into this. I'm so excited. I told you before we started recording that. I have had you on the list. As soon as I said, hell yes, I'm doing a podcast. I knew I was calling it Rebel Souls. And I initially in my phone just made the list of people who I absolutely was dying to have a conversation with. And you were at the top of the list. And for so many reasons, but I was above, I was above Bono. You were you were above. Well, he hasn't returned my call. If hasn't I'm he? Honest. Oh, so, yeah, well, he's, so he's busy. I got some. Sure, do you have any? Do you have any connections? Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I've been listening to the U two X station on uh, Sirius XM radio a lot mm-hmm. lately. So Bono has has been front and center. He would be a fascinating conversation. Well, congratulations on your podcast, and as you continue to grow, and I'm sure Bono will be begging you to be on. Boom. From there your lips is. to God's ears, it's out in the universe now. It's I happening. love that. So, okay. So why did I have you on the top of my list? Because you know this, and I want everyone who's listening to know this, you were like the original trailblazer in my life. And we have so many, we've had so many amazing adventures and you really helped kind of draw out my rebel soul in so many ways that I know we'll talk about. Before we start diving into those stories, I want to ask the question I always ask my guests at the start of the show, what are you rebelling for? Well, that is a great question. And the thing that animates me, at least in a business context, I'll, I'll stay away from what I'm rebelling for personally, other than oh, you the can health of my daughters and family mm. and all that. But corporately, I think the issue for me that's always felt you know, really present and really important to me is the idea of corporate courage. And, and it seems just like a strange phrase. You'd think it would just be like a normal thought, like, well, that's weird. Of course, there's corporate courage. Everyone you know, knows that. But it, I think the fact that most people know that there's not as much of it as they'd like to believe there should be is just an ongoing problem that's been going on for as long as I've been working. And, and you faced it, and I faced it, and probably everyone else is listening to this has faced it. Those moments where you have the, the opportunity, no matter what level you're at, to kind of shove the dialogue and shove the, the direction just a little bit farther towards the courageous, a little bit farther towards the, the risk on versus risk off, you know, for the benefit of the company, not just for the hell of doing something crazy for the sake of it, but because you might have a better idea. So I love that idea. I think most people love that idea, but what people most often face is a lot of barriers <laughs> to get past that initial enthusiasm. And then they kind of get crushed. And then over time they get crushed repeatedly. And then, you know, their rebel soul kind of, you know, goes a wasting. And I just think that's sad. And and I hate to see that in people that that have so much promise and 
and it's good for the corporations as well. So I, I think it's a win-win. It's a win for the employees. It's a win for the corporations. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about what does it take to unlock that inside of a corporation and not just through sort of cat poster you know, types of, hey, be great and think big thoughts type stuff. But really, what is it that that is inherent in the structure of corporations that sort of keep people from being able to flex those muscles? And, and how could we, you know, liberate that? So uh, that's really what I'm passionate about and what I feel like I'm rebelling for every day, even in the corporations that I'm working in now. I love it. And you have a history of doing this, right? So I introduced you at the beginning, but you've been doing this for iconic brands for decades from GMC to Chevy Mm -hmm. to Pontiac to Harley Davidson, where we work together. And now with Moen and House of Roll and all the Mm -hmm. other fortune brands that you are, you know, taking into the next century. And so I'm curious with all of that experience that I know we'll dive deeper into, like, What are a couple of the shifts you think are required both individually for us as leaders to have Mm -hmm. that kind of courage and culturally for organizations to kind of systemically develop a tolerance for that kind of courage? Yeah. Well, that's the trick, right? Because individually, there really are two aspects to it exactly as you just painted. So there's the individual fear. And then there's the corporate infrastructure around the individual. So the individual fear is like any, you know, it's a a normal human fear, right? We even have it in school. Am I going to raise my hand when the teacher asks the question? Oh, maybe I'll get it wrong. (laughs) You know, this, that's, that's inherent in our whole existence. You know, you don't, you don't want to make a mistake. You're afraid to, you know, to look stupid in front of your peers or whatever it is. And so there's just a natural human resistance to that that I think does keep some people from sharing their, their best ideas. So that so that's inherent in, in human beings, and that happens in corporations as well. The structural issue is actually the worst part of it, though, because corporations, after they get past their sort of entrepreneurial phase, where it's it's all new ideas, it's all hey, let's figure this out together, and there's an entrepreneurial spirit by almost by definition because it's a startup, and and people are figuring it out. But once that company becomes more mature, it starts to write rules around itself about how to maintain the success that they've built and how to protect the success that they built. And they write it in the job descriptions. And then when you get a couple cycles of that same job being performed, the new person that comes in the job is handed the job description. And basically the job description says, you know, don't screw it up. (laughs) Do what the last person did and maybe slightly better, you know, make it a little more efficient, a little more effective, but no one's asking in the job description, except for maybe the CMO or those types of jobs inside a corporation where, they're maybe asked to do a little bit more of this kind of thinking. The, the job description doesn't ask you to do it. And then, so that's the first problem. The second problem is everyone around you who works with you has handed their own version of that same job description. So they're all being asked to preserve their own roles. So if so, and they're being paid and rewarded for that by the corporation. So if you in that team are sort of rocking the boat and making things a little less secure for those people, they're not real happy about that because you're kind of putting their own situation at risk. And it's not because they can't accept a new idea. It's because the corporation has set up the situation where they're rewarding compliance and maintenance versus fresh thinking. So, and it's, it's sort of, in my view, at least, it's sort of the reason why that kind of frozen middle of corporations, that kind of middle management layer is so troubling because they're trying to get ahead, but they're trying to get ahead by basically doing what's being asked of them to, you know, by others not and filling the job description well 
not necessarily breaking the mold of what their job could be and, and providing fresh value to the corporation. They're just not being asked to, to do it. So therefore, they're not going to do it. And therefore, no one else is going to get to do it either. So that, that becomes the challenge. And the biggest challenge, of course, is when the CEO or others stand up on a podium and say, hey, we got to be thinking differently. We got to be more courageous. We got to do things differently. But then it doesn't really, it, it sounds great in the forum that they're saving, you know, saying the speech, but it, it doesn't trickle down into the day-to-day because of all those other structures that are built around the, the organization. So it's a very tough problem to crack, but it does take individuals to start to crack it. Well, you're clearly one of those individuals. My experience of you, both working with you personally, working for you, being someone in your life for a long, long time, I've seen you break those rules again and again in different companies with different brands and different industries. What's the secret sauce? Like, What advice can you give to those of us, whether we're entrepreneurs, whether we're in some of those bigger companies that are always trying to follow the rules and looking for the incremental versus the exponential? Because what I know about you you is you've always shot for the moon and you've always focused on that exponential and you've done things like the Oprah car giveaway with Pontiac. Let's be honest. I mean, that feels like a million years ago now, but it's like, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. Sounded like a batshit crazy idea back then. And you've done so much of that sort of thing over the years. So, so yeah, sure. Okay. Well, that was 16 years ago now. So yeah, so it was a while ago. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Funny how it still exists in memes, and I see them all the time. It's it's, it's surreal, actually, to, to see it bouncing around the world as it still does. But anyway, um, that's a, actually a good example to bring up because it is, I think, a, a principle that can be used by others. So if you have an, a business objective, so again, if you're talking about being courageous in a corporate environment, you have to do things that the corporation values. You can't just, you know, go crazy and just start coming up with crazy stuff just for the sake of it and think you're going to be rewarded because that's not, you know, you were hired to build up the corporation, not to, you know, not to do your own thing for the hell of it. So, so the business has an objective and you're trying to serve it through courage and creativity. But in my experience, at least with the teams that I've had the, the benefit of working with, the thing to really help them and help yourself is to get to the extreme level of whatever the idea is that might be kind of, you know, nascent. So you might have the inkling of an idea or an inkling of a strategy, an inkling of something that would be interesting to do, but push that thing all the way out to the craziest iteration of that idea. You know, if we're going to have a bike blessing in Rome, Shelley, should we get a cardinal or, or should it be the Pope? You know, I mean, it's got to be the Pope, right? I mean, the cardinal would be cool, but you need a Pope. Another so, amazing example. So, yeah, but it's, it is an example. And it's the same with, with Oprah. If, you know, we're going to do a car giveaway and we want to, you know, partner with Oprah for these strategic reasons. Is one car cool? Is it 10? You know, I don't know. What, what would it take to do the whole audience? Oh, my God. You know, we don't have eight and a half million dollars in the budget. Well, how do we get eight and a half million? <laughs> I mean, you know, you just, just don't stop. There's a million reasons why not along the way. But if you get out to the craziest version of whatever that, that idea is, and then start just pressure testing it and saying, but maybe there is a way. And if you don't get there, okay, but at least you're going to get farther than you might have gotten without pushing yourself all the way out there. And so they don't all turn into those kinds of successes, but a lot of times they will get you halfway, three quarters of the way there, and it'll be a very good success. And, and I think that is inherent in leadership and, and teams you know, to push the thinking and push the ideas and not let it settle for the good enough. Yeah, you know what's so interesting? Uh, we so I was telling you before we started recording that I was co-hosting 
a live event last night sort of with respect to social distancing. We just experimented with something here in Chicago with a small group. And one of the guys who was presenting last night, he did an exercise with the room that just flashed before my eyes as you were giving that example. And one of the things he had us doing, he said, here are your instructions as an audience. Stand up out of your chair and I want everybody on three, two, one to reach your hands as high to the sky as you can, like absolutely as high as you can. So everybody did that. And they said, okay, we're going to do this again. Now I want you to reach your hands as high to the sky as you can on three, two, one. And of course, people are now climbing on chairs and sitting on walls Mm -hmm. and trying. And his point was exactly what you just said. It's like, well, why didn't we do that? Why did we settle for good enough on the first try? And then we had to be challenged again and again to really reach for the stars. Yeah. Well, and people don't believe that they can or they're going to be given license to. And they think, you know, in that example with Oprah, you know, it's the classic block, but that's not in the budget. So therefore we can't do it. And you've, you know, because you and I have talked about this, I always say, if the idea is good enough, we'll find the money. And the definition of good enough is it has to be worth something to the business or else the money, the business isn't going to give you the money. (laughs) But if it is a good enough idea and it it serves a a business objective and, and the business will support it because it's a great idea. And so even if it's not in the planning budget, it'll, it'll get supported. Yeah, I love what you said, like in the corporate context, and I know there are people, you know, my listeners listening to this who are in the corporate world who are facing many of these same challenges. And I know that there are people like me who are in an entrepreneur situation. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, there's not enough money, but you can find a way. Like, how can we get creative as a solopreneur, as an entrepreneur, as, you know, a C-suite? Intrapreneur. Exactly. Yeah. An entrepreneur. Oh, I love that. I love that phrase. I'd never heard it. Is that a thing? Intrapreneur? Really? You've never heard that before? No, it's been no, around for like 25 years. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's not well like known. my headphones. No, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Those are space phones. Those, those come from the 22nd century. Mark Hans was giving me shit about my headphones earlier. So that's why no, I had to say they're, that. They're lovely. They're lovely. Oh my God. No, no. Intrapreneur. Yeah. yeah. It's the idea of an internal, you know, a corporately internal entrepreneur, someone who works within the parameters of the corporation and, and liberates their own entrepreneur you know, sort of from within. I love um, that. That's what you are. Yeah. That's totally the definition well, and, and, and my experience of you. Well, and, and you and, and others that I've had a chance to work with and, and, you know, and been supported by a lot of bosses. I just talked to one of my old bosses at GM the other day who called me out of the blue, just to say hi, which was phenomenal to have those kinds of relationships. But, you know, no one does it by themselves, right? You have to have support from lots of different people and you have to win that support. But in an entrepreneur, just like an entrepreneur, you know, you got to pitch, you got to get a pitch for funding. You got to do your series A rounds and get your investors and do all those things. So there's always someone you have to sort of help on, has to understand the story of, of why you need support. And no one does it by themselves for sure. But, but there are different challenges if you're doing within a corporate environment versus by yourself. Yeah, I think fair enough. So I want to take a giant step back because what I know about you, I'm sure is a question in a listener's mind right now, which is, okay, so where does your courage come from? So you got this guy Mm -hmm. who's done all this incredible stuff. You have this passion and belief in what you're doing. You have a track record of doing it. So I want to take a massive step back to when I first met you. In 1992, you and I, I just dated both of us. I know exactly. Yeah. Brace yourself. I think this is a good time for shoulder harnesses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like we're climbing the peak, the initial peak of the wild roller coaster. Here we go. 
1992, I said it out loud. I have dated both of us officially, (laughs) but you know what? We're young rebel souls and I'm going to own it. So we are, you know, kind of these, you know, young hot kids in the, a flourishing advertising business Mm -hmm. industry at the time. And we've got pretty sexy jobs working on iconic brands, you know, General Mills and McDonald's and all of the things. And well, I'll you never... were working on Wheaties. I was working on Hamburger Helper, but oh know. yeah, that, well, you that's can, true. You can okay. call it sexy if you want, but I was working with Michael Jordan, and you were working yeah. with an animated hand, <laughs> anthropomorphic hand. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for the reminder on that. I actually <laughs> forgot about that. So the the point is, and I say this in the book because you are a significant character in the book. You've kind of come in and out of my mm-hmm. life and we've been dear friends for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, like there are two things that I can trace to what I experience as your courage. One is mm-hmm. you challenging me to get into improv which we ended up doing together. And then Mm -hmm. shortly after that, you were like, I'm going to go see the world. I'm just going to ask for time off. And I was like, well, who does that? And then I'm like, oh, shit. I had to be reminded to break the rules. So you were doing this back then. So I'm just curious. Like, that's my experience of where some of your courage comes from. But what's the real story? Where does it come from? I don't know. I've just always been in love with creativity. And creativity takes courage. Uh, You know, you if you have a, if you put a value on creativity, if you put a value on the, on the impact that creativity creates, then you almost, by definition, if you believe in that, have to have courage to, to enact that creativity. And I, I don't know inherently where my lack of fear of being fired uh, <laughs> might have, might have burned off somewhere along the line. I mean, I, I probably should have been fired a few times by a few different people. You know, but I don't know. I don't know where that inherently comes from as a person. But I do think that if you just unpack it as a, a value, a value of creativity, if you believe in that and you and you really want to put it in force, then you have to have some courage to to bring that about. And you know, and courage is a, it's a leadership trait. And and I always say leadership is not a, you know. And I know others have said this too. It's not a position. It's a it's a quality. And and so you see leadership. You've seen it in your experiences. I have where you know the person who's lowest on the org chart actually is the most courageous. And, and actually the biggest leader in, in the group and just finding ways to enable those people to kind of rise through the ranks so that more of their good traits can also in, impact others. I think that's one of the challenges in business as well is to make sure those people find their, find their way through and because then they do have positive impacts on other people and, and then the creativity expands. How it happens for me, I don't know. I mean, I did another podcast with Jim Stengel recently and he asked me a question about my first I don't know what it was. I can't remember the question. It was like my first memory of a brand and my answer was Sesame Street. And, you know, I loved Sesame Street. It was, it was an inherently creative, you know, environment. It was just, it was just wild. And it just, it encouraged you just to, it wasn't rote education. It, it was inspiration and it was creation and creativity. And then the lecture company on top of that, which was even weirder and wilder. And so I don't know, there's probably some influences really, really young for me that, that stimulated my mind in ways that it just kept working that way. But beyond that, I don't know that I can, I can answer the question. Well, I think your question was, I mean, your answer was really powerful. So this idea that you are so deeply steeped in your values and those were values that you 
that you were got really clear on early on. And I do love, mm-hmm. I was just kind of going down this like Sesame Street, <laughs> like wild nostalgic ride for a second in my mind. I, I love that like that was something that clearly became a value for you really early mm-hmm. on. And in that answer, it recalled for me a saying that my friend Sally Lou Loveman, she's been on the podcast as well. She says, when you're in your purpose, fear has no access. Hmm. And, and your, your answer made me think of that. So it's like when you're staying true, like living the truth of your values, mm-hmm. fear has no access. And that feels really profound. That's a great one. I'll actually, I'll use that to come back to the answer on the travel, you know, leave of absence thing that we didn't really expand on. No, let's do um, that. No, I want to go yeah, there. I mean, my, I always had in my, in my soul, since that's the word that we'll use as, as the center of this yeah. branded podcast, is in my soul, travel was always a high value. And I, I just always wanted to see the world. I was in love with the maps that I would, you know, see as a kid in school. And, and you know, those, especially those high relief maps that were kind of the plastic ones where the mountains would stick up as like an inch and, oh, that's Everest, you know. And I just, I was fascinated with that stuff and I wanted to see all of it. And so I had a high value, you can call it a purpose if you want that I was going to see as much of that as I possibly could. And I got it in my head pretty early on that as a, as a life strategy, literally thinking about decades of life and assuming that I would have decades of life, I was going to try to go to all the hard places first. Mm. And the reason why I made that decision was I, I was having a hard time imagining me being a 70-year-old you know, in the Amazon or trekking across Africa or something like that. But those are the places that I wanted to go. And I would, you know, if, if I didn't get to the Parises and Londons or the whatevers until later, that'd be fine because it'd be easier to do that as an older person now that I'm an older person. <laughs> and so when it came time to you know maximize that, and, and I also had other values, you know, I, I wanted to have a family. I, I hadn't met anyone to have a family with yet, but I had this in my mind that you know someday I'm going to meet someone that I want to be married to and have a family with. So, and that's going to be another level of obligations, of course, and, and commitments and responsibilities. And it'll be hard to go to the Amazon and trek across Africa and do those kinds of things. Well, so I, I kind of had there was a there was a moment in time where I knew that if I was going to do this. You know, this was the time, sort of between 20 and who knows how long into my 20s. So when I kind of got through three years or so, four years of GDP Needham, you know, Africa was hanging out there. And I had already taken a trip around the world in 1989 after college. So I didn't get a job right out of college to sort of, you know, follow that same purpose. And I, Ooh, I The value of a gap year, my friends. Yeah, I took a gap year before gap years were, were yeah. cool. And all my friends thought I was ridiculous to not accept, you know, all the job offers, you know, that I might have gotten had I put myself into that. But it was great. So I came home and moved back home and worked in a bowling alley and didn't have a job and whatever. So I finally got a job in DDB, but I didn't on that trip around the world ever really hit too much of Africa. I got to Egypt, but that was it. So I'm like, gosh, that's a whole continent. I hadn't seen that. So it was just on my mind. And I found a way to do it. And it was an overland expedition. It was going to take five months. It was in a truck with you know 11 other people. And we were going to drive from Morocco down to Tanzania and all points in between. And you know, so it's not a tour bus. It's so, you know, you're living it. And that just, I was in love with that idea. So I applied for a leave of absence to DDB. <laughs> I looked up leave of absence. I had to figure out, you know, what it was. And I, I wrote a letter. I actually still have the letter and asked, you know, for, for the terms of leave of absence. And for me, it was not back to your statement of that you just mentioned from the other woman who was on your podcast. I had no fear, no fear. I was not at all worried that if 
you know, if they, if they approved it and I could go, I wasn't worried about what was going to happen after. If I, they didn't approve it, I was only worried about how I was going to figure it out some other way. But it's because I felt so strongly about that as a value for myself that you know, there was no fear really inherent in it. I think it's such a powerful reminder for all of us. And I talk a lot about our ripples of impact. To me, it's the new ROI. Mm-hmm. Ripples of impact. Mm-hmm. And you had that Ooh, impact Ripples on of me. impact is ROI. It oh my is gosh. ROI. Exactly. Wow. I wish I could take credit for coining the phrase. I didn't. Somebody was inspired by one of the recent presentations. I... I gave and actually came back to me and said, you've just redefined ROI here, take it. And I'm like, pretty cool. That's the title of my next book. Do it. Yeah. So you were creating those ripples of impact early on in your career, both personally with your tribe of mm-hmm. friends and professionally, because as I, as I talk about in the book, I was like, I'll never forget. I think it was after one of our Saturday night performances Mm -hmm. as the oxymorons, Mm -hmm. our improv group. And (laughs) you were just like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. And I was like, what? Like officially mind blown. Didn't know you could do that sort of thing. And I share that value of of travel Mm -hmm. and and getting out there. As you know, you and I Mm -hmm. have had many, many adventures together. And it made a lasting difference because I don't know if I would have done what I now call my first sabbatical. Shortly mm-hmm. after you got back from Africa, I kind of did the lightweight version, putting a backpack mm-hmm. on my back for four months and going and doing some volunteer work in Central Europe. And yet, mm-hmm. it was the beginning of everything that I did for the that I've done for the rest of my life. It was the beginning of my love affair with global marketing and being out in the world and travel and mm-hmm. all the things. And I and I have you to thank for that. So yeah. I'm really glad you had that conviction well, because it reminded me of my own conviction. Well, that's great. I mean, I, li- I like the phrase ripples of impact. I think that's like, it's another way of saying no one does it all by themselves, right? There's there's these influences that you take and 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 sometimes it's because you're open to the influence. Sometimes you're, you're closed off to it for whatever reason. And it's back to, if I go back to like, you know, college days and I think about college students that I've talked to, you know, just different classes that I've been invited to speak to. Now, I always say, don't, don't get too convicted about what it is you think you're going to do because you have really probably no idea what you're really going to do. And if you go into the world with a very linear, narrow focus, while most, of pe- most people around you are telling you to have that, it could be very costly because the opportunities might be more on the, on the peripheries, left and right. So you've got to keep your peripheral vision up and look for those opportunities, be open to them because those could be the real powerful things to follow. Your whole life, people are telling you, what are you going to be? What are you going to do someday? You know, they're, they're trying to narrow cast you into this, this sort of shoot of focus, which, which is healthy, right? But at some point, it becomes unhealthy, too. And I do think that people have to be open to those influences to, to get the benefit of them. Well, I remember that's perfect segue into when I got a call from you. You had been at Harley for two or three years as the chief marketing officer of Harley Davidson. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting that call from you and you said, I really want to talk to you. And when that conversation, which I thought was going to be like you telling me something horrible had happened in your life and I was all freaked (laughs) out, actually turned into being a conversation around you creating a global marketing organization and a new position and, you know, saying, I want you to be one of Mm -hmm. the candidates for this role 
what you saw in me, I didn't see in myself. And I think it has everything to do with what you just said. You saw all these connecting dots in the experience I had amassed, which seemed really disparate to me. And I think to a lot of recruiters, it was sort of like, yeah, but you haven't taken that straight and narrow brand management path, mm-hmm. or you haven't only been on the client side. You're kind of an agency person, whatever mm-hmm. it is, right? And a lot of the a lot of those were actual quotes. And you yeah. saw how all the dots connected. And that's just another way that your brain thinks and sees these correlations. And I'm forever grateful for that as well, because I suddenly understood how I could go to the client side at Harley Davidson and make an incredible impact with my very unique experience mm-hmm. and my yeah, very unique exactly. path. Yep. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, that, that, that's valuable. You know, I, I think if you had a choice between a person like yourself with that background and a person who had worked in, let's say, motorsports or power sports for their whole career, you could certainly argue that someone with power sports experience, motorcycle or whatever, might be better. But at the same time, it might be worse because they, you know, they've only known what they've ever known. And when you're in a business trying to think expansively about it and how to grow it in new ways and appeal to new people, you're going to need different kinds of thoughts and different experiences and backgrounds. And, you know, you'd, you'd worked in China, you'd worked in Turkey, you know, had this great global, obviously, I already knew you as a person, you know, a great leader, someone who was you know, really good in brands and, and had, you know, great global brand experience. So, you know, I think whether I'd known you or not, it was a it was a good combination for what we were looking for, and I think it was a, it was a great choice. So there you go. Well, and the rest is history. But the reason I wanted to point that out was, well, thank you for I'll receive those those compliments, and I appreciate it. And <laughs> and I'm it was phenomenal. I mean, the six and a half years I spent at Harley was phenomenal experience. And the point I want to make for, you know, for my listeners is I think so often we undervalue our experience. We think, well, it doesn't look like X or it doesn't look like Mm -hmm. Y. And we're trying to put ourselves back in those boxes. You said Mm -hmm. it early on, right? Either in these job boxes that are created within organizations or these career path shoots that Mm -hmm. we think are the quote unquote right thing to do or we should be doing. And you all know how Mm -hmm. I feel about shooting (laughs) on ourselves. And yep. yet we can take a look and say, my, my, one of my coaches has this phrase, transcend and include. So could take all of your experience and keep building on it and building on it and see all of it as relevant as you go. And I just think it's a powerful reminder to us to well, say, I, I, right? I have a career full of proof of concept on that. And mm. just as a short little background. So as you, I think you know, I never took an advertising or marketing course in college. I was a history major at Northwestern, but I did have a little stuffed animal business when I was at Northwestern. And so I came up with this idea and I figured out how to get a loan. $35,000 in 1985 seemed like a lot of money and make these stuffed animal versions of the school mascot and sell them and keep the inventory and deal with the banks and become a salesperson and a marketing person and figure out how to do all that stuff. And so I got into my first interview after coming back from the trip around the world at DDB Needham, where you and I met. Okay, so this is back to fate a little bit. And I got an informational interview because I had a roommate, Bob Handelman, who was an assistant account executive there. And he had, he had said, hey, maybe you should try this. I'm like, okay. So I was open to the influence of his ROI you know, onto me. And I went in there literally for an information interview, like, I don't know anything about this. Why don't you tell me? And the woman who I was meeting with, her name is Robbie Katz at the time, Robbie Boudreau now. 
She's like, you know, I think you'd be really good, but uh, literally, if you leave here today, you're probably never getting back in. So you need to go interview with HR right now. And I had to go interview with HR. I, I had nothing prepped. I, I wasn't doing the informational interview as just a way to get in the door. I was literally seeking information because I had no idea if this would be good for me or not. And I had a horrible interview, but it was basically because of the well, the Wildcat business that they saw something in me, which was not at all linear to what they were really interviewing for. And they had a class of 13 people. And I think only three of them were undergrads. The other 10 were grad students. So somehow they saw something in my background that was not at all, you know, on a piece of paper to say, oh, let's give this guy a chance in advertising. And thank God they did. And I appreciate that to, to this day. So Bob Hanneman, Robbie Katz, thank you, thank you, thank you. And that, that allowed me to meet you. And then moving on from there, after being in advertising for nine years, went client side and I got a job at General Motors, but I didn't even own a car. I didn't own a car when I went to General Motors. I'd never worked in automotive. I didn't own one. I had a motorcycle. I lived downtown. I didn't need one. I didn't, I didn't have a car. So I got a job at General Motors without having any car experience and worked there for almost nine years. And I went to Harley Davidson. They wanted a CMO. They'd never had one before. I'd never been one before. So there's nothing on the piece of paper that says this guy's going to be a great CMO because he's never done it. So, you know, no validation there. And then I went to Moen and House of Roll, and I have no experience in their industry, <laughs> zero. So I'm, you know, learning it from ground zero, and, and it's great. I've enjoyed it immensely. So in every single job I've ever had, I could argue that I have had zero literal direct experience in what they were hiring me to do. And it was all about my collection of other experiences that kind of drew them to me in ways that were different than other people that were interviewing. So I will just reinforce that if people can just do a good job unpacking their experiences and their background and, and the things they've done and making it relevant to that next job, it doesn't really matter if, you know, you had that direct experience or not. I think you can, you can convince them that you could really be a, an excellent candidate for, for that job. I love that. The proof points and in your through line or one of your through lines is creativity and innovation in every single one of those brands and those mm -hmm. industries. And so you've pulled that with you and you're doing a whole lot of it now. I want to bring us to present day okay. where you're sitting. We've got beautiful Moen in the background, but I've been incredibly impressed. Like <laughs> the industry you work in right now, other than, you know, having faucets and showers and those things mm -hmm. in my home. I have no other experience with, and yet I've been following your journey. So you're, you're basically the chief innovation and marketing officer right. in you know, a fairly traditional space that you have been disrupting the hell out of. So I'd love to talk a little bit about some of the innovation that you're driving and the mission mm -hmm. that you're leading some of these brands toward. Okay. Well, it's been as fun as anything I've ever done. And I didn't know that it would be the case when I sort of took a risk to, to jump into this. And the risk was based on the quality of the people that I met along the way as I was interviewing. I, I just was really sold on the people. And once you're sold on the people, I think the rest of it sorts itself out. And if it's a, you know, any kind of opportunity, you can find, you can find something great in it, even if it's not, it's hard, it's hard to, to compare anything to being the CMO at Harley Davidson, right? <laughs> just like, you have this iconic Truth. brand that everybody knows. It's very easy to go to cocktail parties and explain what you do and everyone gets it and everyone wants to talk about it and a little harder to do in other things. But it doesn't mean that it's not fun in, in every other way. And in this case, it is. And the reason why it's fun is the, the reason why the job was created and this job didn't exist before. 
was really to bring sort of innovation and sort of transformative thinking into the organization and to take what was a really successful and has been a really successful legacy brand and set of brands and use those strengths to create new strengths for the future. And I love those kinds of challenges. So when they said that's what they wanted, you know, hey, I'm your guy. And the trick is always, will they really live up to that? You know, will, will that be great for six months? And then they'll kind of get bored with it and <laughs> decide to kind of go back to what they were doing before. And that's always the risk whenever someone says, hey, we want to be transformed. You know, we want to transform the business. We want to be more innovative. In this case, the, the businesses continue to support that thinking all the way through. It's really been, been great. But, you know, what we've been doing is sort of refocusing on the value of our industry is more about the experiences of water and less about the fixtures and faucets and things. So it, it's thinking, just, just looking at what we do just through a slightly different lens, you know, just turning the lens a bit so we can see fresh opportunities in the actual value that we provide for our consumers. So if you, if you change the, the frame from, you know, I provide plumbing to I provide water experiences, it opens your mind in a huge way to think about what that business can do and what it can be. And all of a sudden you're surrounded by opportunity. You don't even know where to go next. Before that, it's kind of like, well, how do I make a slightly, you know, different finished faucet or a slightly different handle or a slightly, and that's great because style is is super important. You got to have style in, in our category. It's a core deliverable, but the rest of it is, what can we do to, to innovate around providing great water experiences? Because people, you know, that means a lot to people, <laughs> even if they're not thinking about it, it inherently does. And then, of course, there's the prevention against bad water experiences, such as leaks in your home and things that are really terrible and happen far more often than people would imagine. And so there's, there's a good side to water that people can really appreciate and a bad side to water that's very hard to protect against. And, you know, strategically, we're just trying to take all that on and, and liberate those water experiences for people in every way that we can think to do around the home. And, and because of that, it's led us to even corporate sort of social responsibility focuses. So we just launched earlier this year something called Mission Mullen. So we did a calculation and said, you know, geez, just in leak detection. So we just recently formed a, an innovation, uh, innovative partnership with a company called Flow in Los Angeles, and, and we have a majority stake now of them. And they make a fabulous leak detection device. And there's a, according to the U.S. government, there is one and a half trillion gallons of water every year that just gets wasted through leaks in the United States alone. Just leaks, just stuff you don't even see happening. Your toilet flappers loose or something happens, or your drains dripping across the entirety of the United States, one and a half trillion gallons. So that's a big in combination, ass number. Yeah. In, it is. It's amazing. And in combination with our leak detection products and our, our smart faucets and smart showers and other things we'll bring to the market in the future, we calculated that we felt that just through making improvements in our products and scaling those products, we could save a trillion gallons of water in the next 10 years. So it's sort of another example, maybe that Oprah example is, okay, well, what can we do? A trillion, that's a nice big number. How can we get to the trillion, <laughs> you know, and start to really work and go, oh, if we did this, if we did that, oh, it would be great. And then the catch is, of course, you know, well, we, we can't ask people to have bad water experiences while they're saving water. We, we can't just have, have this faucet turn on and have a couple drips coming out. So we have to find a way to have awesome water experiences that people love, but also save water at the same time. You have to have, to have both. 
That feels like uh, and the intersection of innovation right there. It right? is. It, exactly. You have to have yeah. a great consumer experience and, and a way for them to feel good about what they're doing without them really sacrificing to, to do it. And that is, you know, that's where the fun is. It's in those tension points where innovation lives. And that's where magic happens where people go, oh, I can't believe that. That's great. And, and that's the kind of stuff we're doing. And everyone's excited about it. And there's a long runway in front of us, too. A lot of things we haven't yet done that we're thinking about that I can't wait to get to them. I'm anxious about it, actually. It's really powerful, this idea, just to go back to the first thing you said, this idea of what business are we really in? Mm -hmm. I had Chip Conley on the podcast as well. And he was mm -hmm. saying how they used to do this at Joie de Vivre, the hotel group mm -hmm. he founded. And then they did it again at Airbnb. And he was challenging all of us to do this. And I love that it's resurfacing in this conversation because if we say, what business are we really in? He says, ask it five times. And you can mm -hmm. never give the same answer qu twice. So you're, mm -hmm. you're getting more and more expansive in your thinking. Mm -hmm. and for you guys to go from, yeah, we design cool faucets and showers and mm -hmm. appliances right? Mm -hmm. Because that's right. how the category is thought of to we are in the water business and mm -hmm. we can have this tremendous impact is the, to me, that's the massive takeaway of all of this. Yeah. yeah. And that's, it starts with having leaders that are willing to have, make that, take that journey, right? Yeah. Because if you're sitting on leading a really successful, profitable 80 year success story, you have to have support. You know, a guy like me or a person like you or anyone else listening to this can't just walk into a corporation and say, all right, everybody, everything's going to change. You know, a new sheriff in town. You, you, you just can't do it that way or else it, it probably won't be right because you won't have enough insight into what the strengths actually are of the corporation before you start ripping things apart. But second, you got to have the support from people to say, well, we want, we want this kind of change. And, you know, we, we need to have this kind of expansive thinking and you got to have support from other people to get there. So again, it's back to, you know, I, I wouldn't want to have anyone thinking that the idea of being a rebel in a corporation is, is to just, you know, say, you know, screw it all and just start climbing the walls with, with incredible thinking that really is irrelevant to the, to the purpose of the business or the, or the, the way it gets paid. But to not stop short of, of feeling what those expansive opportunities might be as you change the lens of what you could be looking at is what the business really provides to the consumer. Well, and I love that you made the point earlier that you're enrolling people along the way. So these aren't yeah. brained crazy schemes that are completely over there. Maybe they eventually are, but you're enrolling people in this kind of thinking, in the more expansive yeah. thinking, in the proof points for that thinking, yeah. in the creative ways, and just in getting creative about how saving a trillion gallons of water yeah. in 10 years might be accomplished. So it's, yeah, it's again, ripples of impact, right? because well, you are never doing it on your own. You're right. And, and I love that thought, Ripples of Impact. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely support you on that thought being the foundation it. of your second book. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, the thing about innovation, I guess, is it almost always, if it works, is built on the foundation of some other prior success. So if you're going into an organization and you're the change agent, it's really good to start by figuring out what are we already successful at? <laughs> what are, what are the, what's the foundation of our success? How do, we, how do we get this far? You know, you shouldn't ignore that. You shouldn't say that, oh, that's old news, that's yesterday. You, you got to start by appreciating what that foundation of success is and then think about how those are ingredients to then cook with to turn into innovation because then the organization can really understand more about what you're doing differently because it's founded on something that they already inherently understand. It doesn't feel like, oh my God, you know, there's some alien thing just happened 
it's an extension of what they're already good at. It's a reimagination of something that they were already comfortable with. And because of that, they can start to see themselves in and it doesn't feel as scary. And it actually gets the organization further faster than to come in and just start breaking windows and saying, well, you know, everything's going to be different now because so-and-so is here. That usually doesn't work real well, at least in my experience. I mean, I've seen it a couple of times where people, you know, come into organizations like that and, and it just feels dismissive and it feels disrespectful. And maybe there's some reasons why, you know, there should be a little disrespect for some things that just have never been tried. But I think if you do it that way, it's hard to get the rest of the organization to follow you. And if you can't get them to follow you, you're not going to get too much accomplished. Yeah, I think that's good. That, that feels like another part of that secret sauce, you know, mm-hmm. of, of what does corporate courage look like? It's a good, mm-hmm. that's a powerful anchoring point into how you get stuff done in a really creative and innovative yeah. way. Yeah. The one other thing that I've noticed is in the work that you've been doing with all of the fortune brands with Moen and House mm-hmm. of Roll and everything else you're creating is that there's an activism component to this whole we're in the business of water. And I just thought it's powerful. Like I, I read, I think you posted this on LinkedIn that you guys are lobbying to suspend water shutoffs mm-hmm. during mm-hmm. COVID. And I loved mm-hmm. that hashtag unlock water for all. And I right. thought, God, would you have ever gotten there if you weren't in this mindset of we're in the water business. And so how can we be rebelling for water for all, rebelling for safe water, all of those things? That's expansive thinking. Well, it also starts with what is our response into these challenges, you know? So (laughs) it's going on, right? This is happening to us, to all of us. And then we sit back as a business and say, all right, well, what is our role in this? What could we do to make this better? I mean, and there's lots of things you could do. We could, we could talk about all kinds of social causes and all kinds of things. But when you're, when you're for your, your foundation is really on water experiences, and then you map that to the COVID crisis and example, you know, the appreciation of water, if you think about washing your hands, is probably never been higher <laughs> about the value that actually that water experience coming out of that faucet or coming out of that shower is probably as high as it's ever been because you need to do that to try to help keep yourself safe and others safe. So when you when you see that, all of a sudden it's like, hey, this is exactly what we've been talking about. Water is important. And those who don't have water are going to have a hard time keeping themselves and other people safe. So let's go down that road because, you know, that, that's just, that's just inherent. That's just true. It's inherent. It's, it's not some political posture. It's, it's not about, you know, what, what our politics are. It's just, this is just truth. And it, and it fits with what it is we provide as a consumer and a social benefit. And let's try to nudge that uh, towards, towards the good as much as we can. And it's not easy, right? Cause it would be impossible. Our business could never afford to you know, pay for everyone's water bills. It, it, it's just, it's not possible. So there are limits. So in this case, you know, we're working with government. If they're going to be supporting people and businesses for this, let's try to also include this value because it's inherent in helping solve the current issue that's in front of us, the pandemic. And this is our unique role in it. So we were very proud to put that together. We're still in the midst of it. There's a bill going through in the next probably three or four weeks. And so we're, we're actively engaged. It's it's a dogfight, all of it, because there's a lot of vested interests involved. And we'll see if, we, if we're successful, but it won't be for lack of trying. Yeah, I love it. All different paths to you know that, that broader mission. And for me, one of the biggest takeaways of all of this is like when we're really anchored into our values, we're really anchored into mm-hmm. our purpose and our mission, really nothing stands in our way. Well, it's a lot easier to figure out what the opportunities are. <laughs> 
it's a great sorting mechanism because as you know, right, there's things coming at you every day, opportunities, risks, whatever. And, and you have to get through the day. You got to lead people through it and you got to make sure you're focusing on the most important stuff. We got a business to run too. You know, it, it can't just be about one thing or the other. You have to find a way to get it all through to the other side to be, to have the impact that the business needs to have and for the people in the business as well. So, you know, I think it's always a balance, but having a purpose, having a strong filter is, is a great way of achieving a lot in your limited time and limited energies. Yeah, that's a great way to put a fine point on that. So final question, you stand for corporate courage. You've had this incredible, or still having this incredible career marked by corporate, you know, marked by courage in growing iconic brands. What to you is like the single most powerful example of courage? Something either in your life or something that you've Single most powerful example of corporate courage? Yeah, of corporate courage, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's a really hard question, Shelly. You should have given me this one ahead of time. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, there's, no, I mean, it's, there, I mean, there's so many. I, I guess what I'm trying to, as I'm thinking about it, I'm trying to stay away from the corporate social responsibility stuff because I think that's almost, almost too easy of an answer. There, there's lots of corporations that have done really had, had amazing impacts, you know, outside of their business models, which I think is always admirable and, and good. But my sense of corporate courage has always been about, you know, what kind of courage does it take to unleash the organization to create more growth for the business? Because that's, you know, that's what the, that's what people are, are hired to do. So it, it's sort of hard to, you know, think of, of a, the best example, you know, maybe I have to use my own examples because I, and I, and I apologize for doing that because it's going to sound selfish. So no, I don't no, know. No, this, and it's, it, that was, that was totally in this play. Is, yeah. This does not satisfy the answer to the best example I could ever think of, because I'm sure I'll think of one as soon as we stop recording. But when, uh, you know, GMC is, is maybe a little lesser known part of my own background and, and GMC trucks. And, and I was there and been at General Motors for two years. And I got put into this, this opportunity to be leading advertising for GMC. And, and it was during a very, very tough time. The organization had not gotten from GMC what they thought they were going to get. And they were really threatening and, and I think very seriously threatening to shut down the whole division and just basically make those trucks and, you know, give them to Chevrolet and, and let that be it. And, you know, that that just seemed like a bad brand decision to me. And I was, you know, now responsible, responsible for the brand. I was told we had six weeks to basically fix it or else <laughs> that was going to be it. I mean, literally six weeks. Wow. And so from a courage perspective, I think courage lots of times gets liberated when, when you kind of get put into the deep end of the pool or, you know, backed into the alley. You, you kind of don't have a choice, right? You've got to fight through it. Or you could choose just to, you know, fold the cards. But I, I've been given a new responsibility and I was, you know, energized by that. And, you know, we, we had a position called a professional grade and it had never really caught fire with anybody. And it really wasn't succeed, succeeding for the business. And so within those six weeks, we took that strategy, we framed it in a different way. We put it out into some testing. This is all within six weeks. <laughs> Develop new creative, put it in test because you had to do it. And General Motors, you had to test everything. And then basically convince all the senior leaders of, GMs, of G General Motors overall that this was going to be the idea that would then unlock the premise and the promise of the business more so than giving that volume to Chevrolet and, and making them into Chevy Silverados and Chevy Tahoes. 
and I, it's one of the proudest moments of my career. I mean, I remember the meeting. It was myself and Lee Garfinkel at Lola Lintas. I mean, the famous, famous creative and making the pitch. You know, I'm a 32-year-old guy, you know, basically trying to save GMC with Lee Garfunkel and my boss, Lynn Myers, who was wonderful, still is wonderful. And the fact that we could stand up there and say, here's the solution. We know this is going to work. We did it in six weeks, but don't let the time fool you. This is the right way to go. And, you know, and now 20 years later, that campaign is still running. GMC is the second biggest division of General Motors. I think it's the most profitable on a percentage basis. And, you know, when, when the government took over General Motors, they actually thought we should shut down GMC and then they could put the, they actually put the data in front of them and said, no, that's the last thing you want to do. And the government said, yeah, you're right. And they didn't shut it down, which is like, to, to me, the ultimate validation of, of everything our small team put together in that six weeks and supported by leaders in the business to kind of take it on and say, no, we're not going down like that. And provided a hell of a lot of business for, or, or value for General Motors, you know, besides. So, I don't know that it's the best, but in my experience, at least, it was the moment that felt most courageous to me because it would have been very easy just to say, all right, we're done. You know, just phone it in, shut her down. It, that would be a much easier decision than to fight through it and figure out how you're going to use creativity to solve it. And, and we did. I think it's brilliant and it's a perfect place to end. And I love that 20 years later, it's still thriving. I just got what a direct mail piece story. about it the other day, you know, GMC, we are professional grade. And it's the same basic brand standards and everything from 20 years ago, which, which we put in place at that time. So it's, uh, it's really, it's gratifying. I'm glad you used that example. I'm glad we stayed. I should have asked the question to stay in your territory and your, your best example. And I'm sure we'll both think of great examples after this, but there are thousands, tens of thousands, you know, lots of examples in the world. And so I just, I want us all to get in the practice of celebrating those, right? And celebrating the corporate courage in those moments, because it is literally baby step by baby step and moment by moment. And let's get in the habit of seizing them and celebrating them. Well, and hopefully your audience, you know, had their own answers, right? And popping into their heads as you were answering, asking the question to me, hopefully they've got their own and and that'll be expansive and create those ripples yeah, of impact. Yeah, ripples of impact, baby. This has been amazing. So for people <laughs> who have said, okay, this is like, this truly is a trailblazer. Shelly wasn't lying. Mark Hans is a game changer. Need to follow this guy. Where can people find you? LinkedIn. All right. Mark Hans return. It's, it's Mark. I don't have a, I don't have a brand. I just no, I, just I know. LinkedIn well, page. you are you are one of the <laughs> the incredible stewards of of brands. I would say so. It's Mark hyphen Hans and then Richer, and we'll have all of that oh, yeah. in the, in the show notes. You're a great person to follow, just to be on the on the bleeding edge of some really creative, innovative thinking. Not just what you're doing at Moen, but you have a great perspective on world events and other brands and and all mm-hmm. the things. So. Thank you. Thank you for spending this time nice and doing a little dive into our personal and professional intersections and all the great work well, you're doing in the world. I was really, really looking forward to it. It was, it was fabulous. And I'm really proud of you and happy for you and everything you're doing. It's really great. And I, I know that you're creating positive ripples of impact. And that's really great to see. From the OG rebel soul, I will take it. <laughs> Boom. I love it. All right. Thanks, you guys, for tuning in. And we'll be back next week. Bye. Hey Rebel, thanks for listening. If you were inspired by what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review so our fellow Rebel souls can find us. We have big work to do together. 
And if you want to dive deeper, head on over to my website at sylvatical.com and follow me at sylvatical on Instagram. Until next time, stay bold, brave, and badass. And never stop asking, what am I rebelling for?